Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, September 6th. I cannot believe it. The two weeks of the U.S. Open almost complete. Today we were treated to two fantastic women's semifinal matches for very different reason. Obviously, in one of them, one level, one player's level of play just simply shined. In the other, ugh. What a match our nightcap was. Here to join me to talk about all of it, a frequent guest of our Cracked Rackets podcast. Uh, so listeners, if you're new as part of the Tennis Channel podcast, bump, uh, bump you know, get used to hearing his voice. He is the co-manager of the wonderful website, Tennis with an Accent, the author of the book, Novak Djokovic, Making the Rough Places Plain, a guy who is way too kind with his time. Matt Zemek, welcome to the Mini Break Podcast. Hey, it's championship weekend now, so we got to raise our games. Absolutely. Unlike earlier, we were supposed to have you on for a winners and losers week uh, before this podcast started. We hashed out our issues with super producer Daniel Westoff. Uh, so before we even begin, I, I want to backtrack a little because obviously we're going to talk about those semifinal matches, but you guys at Tennis with an Accent have written some great pieces. You've had the chance to do some deep dives throughout the U.S. Open as well. Um, in particular, you know, Fallen Hero, Medvedev Dimitrov, Grigor Dimitrov, and the details with which don't matter in more particular, just on the men's side real quick. Uh, can you talk about some of those pieces and just what you guys have been up to? Well, um, let's, let's start with Dimitrov because it, it, I, you know, being on tennis Twitter all the time, live tweeting matches, following what other people throughout the tennis community are saying, I don't think there's a more sympathetic figure in men's tennis than, than Grigor Dimitrov. Everybody wants to see him win if, the, if he's not playing their favorite player. I mean, you could also you could put Del Potro in the same category, but but people know that you know Del Potro he's won a major, uh, and and he's he's reached he reached last year's U.S. Open finals, and and he doesn't Del Potro generally doesn't you know give away matches the way Dimitrov has done so often for so many years. And of course, at the end of 2017, when he won the ATP finals, you know, everybody was on board the train of, okay, here we go. 2018, it's all going to come together. You know, this is, this is the season when it's all going to happen. And all of this unrealized talent is finally going to, to uh, mesh. It's going to gel. It's going to, you know, just the pieces of the puzzle are going to fit. And then it became a Price is Right sad trombone. Um, and so, you know, there's just so much empathy for Dimitrov, at least, you know, from what I sense in the global tennis community. And, you know, when he loses it, it, it and, and, you know, usually loses in an exquisitely torturous fashion, there is such an outpouring of, oh, you know, poor Grigor that, 
you know, I have to just say, you know, the sad ballad of his of his career continues. It's just another country song at a jukebox on the side of the road in in Tennessee. And, uh, you know, that just that that awareness of the weight of sadness and failure and disappointment crashing down on poor Grigor Dimitrov's shoulders. That sentiment is so deep and entrenched in our minds as tennis fans, and it's so readily apparent for me as a tennis commentator. And the people who follow me on Twitter know that I'm always there with the Gregorian chant, uh, the lament, the lamentation of of how sad his career has been. That that sadness is just so deep, Alex. That after this moment against Federer, and you can say whatever you want about Federer and how how his his physical condition played a role in that match. It obviously had a lot to do with the outcome. No one disputes that. But to say, well, but in relationship to Grigor's achievement, it, it's not fair to Grigor to do that. After all that he's been through, after all that he's felt, all that he's absorbed, all that he's been asked to endure, well, but just doesn't fit the moment. It, 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 it should be Grigor's moment, you know, as Federer himself said, it's Grigor's moment, not Federer's body's moment. Um, and so a lot of what we wrote at tennisaccent.com was meant to give Grigor full credit, the credit that he deserves, the credit for, you know, you, can, you can't control the outside circumstances. And Grigor has been in many positions over the years that were favorable, and he found a way to turn those favorable situations into losses. So this was a situation in which he had the favorable situation and standing in front of 23,000 people and a crowd that wanted his opponent to win. He stood up to the pressure, handled the heat. He took the match five, which is what exactly what he needed to do to win. You know, Federer could have made a late push there in the 10th game of the fourth set to uh, even things up and possibly get into a tiebreaker, close it down in four and, uh, you know, escape. But Grigor wouldn't have that. And so, Yes, we all know that Federer's condition had a role in that outcome, but to to uh, kind of uh, diminish the achievement or to you know explain it away or well, Grigor didn't have to do that much. Well, in the past, he hasn't had to do all that much either, and he's failed. So let's just acknowledge how straightforwardly he was able to look his demons in the eye and conquer them this time. It's a great story. This is a guy everyone in tennis wants to succeed. Um, there, you know, There's no bad boy in him. Through all of his frustrations, all of his downtimes, he's remained upbeat. He's remained you know, a popular figure in the locker room. You know, he hasn't let this, his journey and its detours and its downfalls uh, and make him a bitter man. He, he's remained sunny and positive that that's the kind of person you want to see succeed. And so obviously planet Federer is rightly you know, disappointed at this in, in latest incredible stroke of bad luck at the U S open. Um, Federer has a U.S. open curse. Now the way Rafa had an Australian open curse for several years, it's kind of Federer is making this late career run at a U.S. open curse. Uh, so obviously a lot of people are upset about that, but we can put that in one box over here, Alex, and then this other box over there, we need to give full and unvarnished credit to Grigor Dimitrov. So that's a lot of what we're writing about it at tennisaccent.com. We really wanted to make sure that the the, the full uh, measure of his achievement was appreciated and respected and also placed into 
historical context, um, just a final note here on this topic that, you know, the, the, um, both the Dimitrov and the Medvedev wins in those Tuesday quarterfinals at the U.S. Open, they both carried some strong resemblances to past Federer matches at major tournaments. Uh, the Federer-Dimitrov match was especially like the 2017 Australian Open semifinal against Vavrinka, at least in the sense that Federer took a medical timeout after the fourth set, and he had two days off after that match if he could get through it. So in 2017, he got through that match uh, in five sets. He didn't do that here, but the but the resemblance between those two was striking. And then in the uh, Medvedev-Vavrinka match, um, if Vavrinka had converted that set point in the first set, it probably would have been a long uphill climb for Medvedev, who was hitting bailout drop shots, hitting them well, but he nevertheless, he was bailing out on points in the first set, and he desperately needed that first set against Vavrinka uh, to gain leverage, gain the upper hand against a man who, you know, as as was revealed later, was still sick and was in bed for most of the 24, 36 hours before that match. So that end of that first set uh, also, you know, reminded me of a Federer match at a major, and that was the Xavier Molise Wimbledon fourth round match. In 2012, Federer took a medical timeout, went off the court at 6-5 with Molise serving. He had just broken Federer. Melise was about to serve for the first set. And I certainly remember thinking, oh, God, he's done. I mean, you know, maybe he'll try to win another set or two, but he's probably not going to get through this match. And he's definitely not going to win Wimbledon. Uh, but then, you know, Melise, being the erratic player he was, he uh, lost focus in that 6-5 game, got broken. Federer won the first set tiebreaker, played on adrenaline in the second set, kind of completely lost focus in the third but was able to grab it right back uh, in the fourth. And a week later, he was Wimbledon champion. So uh, that the, those two quarterfinals on Tuesday, Spafrinka uh, Medvedev in that first set, and then uh, Fedor Dimitrov with the medical timeout after the fourth set, uh, brought back a lot of memories from major tournaments this past decade. The piece, Grigor Dimitrov and the details which don't matter, which you listeners can find on tennisaccent.com. It was really interesting. I do want to add two things. I promise we will talk about semifinals, but you talked about Federer not being healthy. That is, uh, you know, he takes the time out, but look, he had beat Goffin 2-2-0 the round before. To say he was injured the whole tournament, obviously not fair, as you mentioned. Uh, but for Grigor Dimitrov, you have to be, give him credit for how fit he was in that fifth set. He looked great. He looked like he could go another two hours if needed. The fact that he knew if he made the match physical, it would play to his advantage. You know, that sort of, to be able to have that sort of focus, to make that sort of adjustment at that stage, given he was 0-7 against Federer coming into the match so impressive and I you, you mentioned those things as well but it was interesting some of the comparisons you made you know Fabio Fognini Philip Kohlschreiber Nicholas Almagro in the piece uh it, when Dimitrov won those world tour finals he makes the semifinal of the Australian Open I think at the next slam it really did feel like okay is this the guy who's going to step up now that these other guys are in their mid to late 30s and to see him have this run after going 12 and 15 in 2019 up to the U.S. Open Simply spectacular. So, again, go check that piece out. 
One other piece I want to talk about, and this is how we will transition into the women's uh, semifinals. There's a you know, deep dive you guys are doing at Tennis with an Accent, diversity, not chaos, an ecological look at the WTA, talking about you know, how only Serena has you know, won more than four titles in a, in a season, and how is, this, is it parody? Is it that there's actually a lack of top talent? No one's standing out, all of these things. And I, just, I think it's been fascinating to see that dynamic play out at this U.S. Open. Can you talk a little bit about the piece and then you know, your thoughts on how we've seen that in action? Well, the piece was written by a man named Ed Salmon. Uh, his um, Twitter handle is Fogmount, short for Fog Mountain, the blog site where he uh, writes sometimes about not just tennis, but the, the environment and other uh, uh, deep philosophical subjects. He's a very well-read, literate man, and uh, he used just an ecological environmental framework to talk about a number of, of concepts. And one of the things that was interesting about his uh, his piece, Alex, is that he talked about weeds, you know, in terms of like how weeds kind of protect and nourish the environment. And we, we, we are used to, to viewing weeds as negative and intrusive and ugly. But Ed put a... Stupid joke here, but unless you smoke them. Oh, Westoff, give me the drum, please. Go on. Very, very, very good. So <laughs> when um, when when Ed talks about weeds, they're not. It's not an automatically bad thing. I mean, obviously, you you know, if, if weeds overgrow too much, you know, clearly a problem. But they do have an ecological purpose, and so that was part of not the whole. I mean, you really have to read the piece, but it was certainly a part of Ed's explanation that what seems like randomness and chaos is actually balance and depth spread across the WTA tour. I mean, it's it's one of the more fascinating conversations we have now in tennis. I mean, in terms of macro, not micro, you know, is, is what we're seeing on the WTA chaos uh, and randomness, or is it is it amazing quality depth spread throughout the landscape and ed clearly arrived at the latter view and he used some charts over the past 30 years to illustrate his point and i think he made his point very convincingly it doesn't mean that i that i agree with everything he said but i mean if he if you were going to make the case for quality depth instead of randomness and chaos you would make it the way ed salmon did so um fog is just a really intelligent guy the other thing I have to say about Ed, and I mean, he, he so he was writing this as a freelancer for us, and the, we have we've published several stories during the U.S. Open uh, at tennisaccent.com called Tennis Accent Premium. So it's a it's a small select series of long reads, everything at least like 1,900 words, if not more, some deep dives, as you said, uh, on, on tennis stories that you won't commonly find in just kind of the daily churn. Of, te- of, you know, of regular content coming on matches or the latest soap opera and tennis governance. You know, we, we tried to, this is kind of slow food. It's not fast food. You know, not the four, not the 400 word, you know, match report, you know, hand cranked, but it, no, this is like a, a, you know, the food that you put in the crock pot and you simmer for 12 hours. And then at the end, you have all this tender meat, you know, just dropping off the bone. That's, this is slow food where you stop and you really consider an issue for 2000 words or so. So we've had uh, some of our own in-house writers writing stories here, but we've also had freelancers. So Ed is one of them. 
We've had a Spanish journalist, Carlos Navarro. His Twitter handle is the Magician Five GS. I guess he thinks he won five Grand Slams in a previous <laughs> life. Uh, he did an amazing story on mental health using the example of Marty Fish, who, if you remember, seven years ago at the U.S. Open, just couldn't play that fourth round match against Roger Federer because of mental health. Uh, so it was an amazing story, starting with Fish and then talking to several other players in the ATP and WTA top 500, you know, players who are really just trying to scratch and claw to make a living and how mental health is part of their world, part of their struggle. That's an amazing piece that he published in both English and Spanish. Um, and then uh, our most recent uh, tennis accent premium installment was by Yesh Ginsberg at Yesh, Y-E-S-H, 222. Um, he wrote about how lazily the tennis rule book is written. And he made some very compelling points. One of the more interesting uh, 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 arguments he made, and I totally agree with this, if you write the rule book in a careless way, such that some of your um, rules are never going to be enforced by chair umpires or, or, or other relevant people, then how are you ever going to be able to say that all the rules should be enforced consistently? And that, that obviously being a longstanding bugaboo in tennis, and when with Serena playing in the U.S. Open final again, one year after you know what happened, uh, that discussion about enforcing the rules is probably going to be talked about in the run-up to that final against Bianca Andreescu. Well, you're talking about meat coming off the bone. You're talking about weeds. You live on the West Coast. I'm starting to wonder what your pre-podcast ritual is. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. That being said, uh, to, to you know, use this as our transition into our talk about these U.S. Open semifinals, it's so fascinating because the big discussion point about the women's singles draw coming in, and by the way, again, TennisAccent.com for all of those stories. They really are all great. Um, but coming into this U.S. Open, the, the running joke was, you know, 50 if you're hammered, 30 if you're, you know, feeling loose. But, you know, 25 women seriously could have been in contention if things broke right to win this title. And to come down to these final four players, Svitolina, Bencic, Andreescu, and Serena Williams, it feels like it was the opposite of that scenario. It felt like these were the four players who, if you, you know, watch the breadcrumbs throughout the season, they belong in this final four at this slam. Would you agree with that, Matt? I would. Uh, and, and so it's, it's kind of an irony that four players so decisively made their way to the semifinals in the midst of this chaos. I, I would offer this caveat, though, that um, based on what happened over the past month, based on what happened in August, you certainly would not have included Benchich in this Final Four, uh, it, it, you know, being able to make her way this far. Now, Serena, you know, Toronto Final, Andrescu winning Toronto, and then Osaka, or Osaka, Svitolina having, you know, made the semis of Wimbledon and, and you know, generally looking like a solid player who had, who had been rebuilding her game, yes. But Bencic really is the one player who still had that out-of-nowhere quality. Like, you, you, you honestly would not say 
you saw it coming uh, based on the previous month of tennis. Uh, much, much like, much like Grigor on the men's side, you just simply could not have seen it coming if you were to use the past month uh, as a basis for judgment. Obviously, you could say that you know ben, what Benjic did in February, and then at Indian Wells could be used as a measurement, but certainly not on the past month. That's fair. And look, I'm patting myself on the back here. I had circled Bencic as a player to watch because, as you mentioned, her run through Dubai into the, I think, semifinals or finals of Indian Wells, as impressive of a two-week stretch on hard court as anyone we had seen throughout the season. Now, you're right. Her results, you know, after that run did not really match up. I think third rounds at both uh, the French Open at Wimbledon, but her level of play certainly... uh, you know, throughout the week, it, it led her to the semifinals. She deserved to be here, but in her match tonight against number seven, uh, number fifteen seed Bianca Andreescu, I mean, the level of tennis between these two simply stunning. And for Andreescu to pull out the seven six seven five win when it felt like she was trailing for seventy five percent of the match, Matt. I mean, I just I do not get how the young Canadian continues to do it. I don't either. I mean, th- th- this this kind of mental strength is extremely uncommon. You know, so she faced a set point in set one. She was down 5-2, double break, and then 5-4, 30-love, Benchich serving two points from the second set, and she wins in straights. I mean, and, and you could say with, so, with some degree of, of uh, accuracy and legitimacy that Benchich, her game began to fragment and her shots began to break down toward the end, but nevertheless, Andrescu just wins every important point. She really is a, a female Djokovic right now. I mean, not in terms of overall championships, overall season-long dominance, but just in terms of a more narrow focus in terms of how she competes within matches and finds ways to win all the most important points. Uh, very Djokovician. Um, she's 12-0, and in three set matches since the start of Indian Wells. That is just ridiculous. And she keeps playing these three setters. We thought she was uh, going to have another three setter in this Benchich match when she was down 5-2 double break in the second set. But my goodness, she just, every important point, she's there. And, you know, it's it has to be noted that she doesn't play flawless tennis. Uh, I'm I'm reminded, not stylistically, but just in terms of, how a tournament unfolded, Alex. Uh, Yelena Ostapenko's 2017 sure. Roland Garros. Mm-hmm. You know those were those were up and down three setters, but when when it when it came to be crunch time, Ostapenko was nails in that tournament. So th- th- this run somewhat reflects and recalls that particular tournament. But um, you know, Andrescu, unlike Ostapenko, she there is a hit and miss quality to her game, but Andrescu had, can call upon so many more different kinds of shots. Uh, Ostapenko, you know, is a little bit more limited in her focus um, and, and her repertoire, but Andrescu, my goodness, I was struck by there was a shot midway through the first set. It was either 3-3 three, three or 3-4. Three, um, it was like a, an Angelique Kerber or Agnieszka Radvanska squat shot yeah you know bending the knees but the redirected the forehand right that she redirected yes and so with kerber and radvanska that's usually a two-handed backhand and rescue squatted and just and and she squatted and she swatted 
a for a muscular forehand to the corner of the court. I mean, she is so freaking powerful. At the end of this match against Bencic, it was only one player who was delivering considerable weight of shot, and it was Andrescu. Bencic got, got punched out. She just she got worn down against Andrescu's body blows. Even more impressive, Ian, you were talking about you know the physical stuff we'll, I want to get to in the second and the tennis, but mentally, you talk about the difference in Bianca Andreescu versus, and I'm going to go across gender here, and Alex Virev, Karen Kachnov, Borna Chorich, or just guys, you know, Hyun Chung, guys we've seen make the late stages. Andreescu is playing not to lose. She is hitting her shots. She plays, you know, she plays aggressively. She's going big if you leave a ball short. Benchich throughout the match did, I thought, did a really good job. And oftentimes, why she found herself in the lead, she extended Andreescu to the outer third. She kept Andreescu out of rhythm. She didn't let her sit on anything because she was well aware that if you leave Bianca Andreescu a short ball or even um, an intermediate ball that's attackable, that's exactly what she's going to do. The power she can generate off the ground, so special. It's funny because she's listed at 9 of 13 at the net on the U.S. Open stats, but I can't believe that includes swinging volleys because she had to have hit more than 13 swinging volleys in the match. She just attacks, attacks, attacks. It doesn't matter if she's down 5-2, 30-love. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, 5-6 and uh, add in, add out, add in, add out. She's just going to keep attacking. She makes 38 unforced errors, but because she's relentless, because she has the mental fortitude to hit through her mistakes, she hits 40 winners as well. And so, yes, Ostapenko is powerful, but just this sort of dynamic attack, and it, it, even when she's having her misses, it's hurting you in the right ways. I think Ostapenko, with all due respect, is immensely talented, but it was more of a reckless power. Andrescu's just mentality and focus is so impressive for someone who is, what, 19 years old? I just, I, I can't believe the level of play she's reached in, just throughout this year. Uh, I can't either, and, uh, you know, it, I hope that people in the WTA locker room and 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 people who are players who are you know have flown home after losing at the U.S. Open. I hope that they're watching this because so much of of tennis today, and I mean this might not be too different from 15, 20 years ago. It is probably different from 30 years ago because you had more grass courts, and when you did have Wimbledon, you know the grass was so chewed up, so you had a lot more serve and volley, a lot more net play. But um, so much of tennis in the 21st century, let's keep it to, to that frame of time. Um, so much of, of tennis is, you know, endless back cross-court backhand exchanges. And you, you get the feeling from a lot of tennis matches that one player is waiting for the other player to miss. Now, this can be a perfectly good and legitimate pathway to winning lots of professional tennis matches. You know, if you know that you're consistent, if you know that you're fitter, uh, if you know that you have better foot speed and court coverage, why wouldn't you want to trade cross-court backhands all day and, and kind of be, uh, uh, well, you know, a David a David Ferrer on the ATP side and then uh, uh, WTA, maybe Sloan Stevens might be a, a reasonably good example. Might not be the perfect example, but a, but a reasonably good one. Uh, but you know, you, you, you can try that, but why do that when you can be the player who, you know, when you get a reasonably attackable intermediate ball, you go for it and you gain leverage on the point. I mean, and, and so Andrescu 
understands this better than any other non-Serena person on tour, not just in this Benchich match, but also in the Mertens quarterfinal. As soon as Andrescu got a look at, at you know, just a, a reasonably attackable neutral ball, she went after it. And, um, it, you know, it, Benchich sprayed her shots and, and kind of unraveled late in this semifinal against Andrescu. It, Mertens didn't so much spray the shots. She just couldn't get around the shots. When, when Andrescu went to Mertens' uh, ad side, the, the, the backhand corner, and, and was able to get the ball, you know, just inside the sideline such that Mertens had to hit the ball at her or, or near the doubles alley. Uh, Mertens, the ball, the ball just went diagonally into the seats. In other words, Mertens' racket face was not able to, you know, bend toward the middle of the court so that she could redirect the ball, uh, you know, with, within the court. She, she, she couldn't even keep the ball in the doubles alley. And it wasn't her, it wasn't Merton's being erratic that she just couldn't really get to the shot in full with her racket prepared to put the ball anywhere close to in play. So, I mean, that, that's, sh- that shows how much Andrescu's weight of shot has jumped on opponents, really ambushed them. And they're, they're still not really adjusting to what she does. And, and part of why they're not adjusting is that, as for as much power as Andrescu has, as soon as she sees someone, you know, receding a few more feet behind the baseline, she'll drop. Uh, she'll put a drop shot on you, or she'll put a squash shot on you, or or you know, she'll she'll hit like an underhand um, slice forehand. Uh, sh- she can really hit the ball in so many different ways from so many different angles. Uh, Obviously, she leads with her power. That's her main dance step. But she she not only has other cards to play, she's willing to play them, and she normally makes the shot when she when she does so. So uh, it, it's just a remarkable display of versatility. It's not really Ash Barty because Barty hangs her uh, hat on the slice. Uh, Andrescu hangs her hat on power. So they're they're both two very different versions of a a varied game and a willingness to use various shots at specific points in time. Um, it, it's been, it's been remarkable to watch and I hope that the rest of the WTA is taking notice. Yeah, it, you mentioned it all, the variety on top of the power and look, the two things she did best statistically in this match, she won 70% of her first serves versus bench at 62, but she hit 40 winners to bench is 16, you know, unforced error wise bench is at 32 close to Andrescu's 38 it's just an incredible display. And look, the Benchich forces Andrescu to play, what, 31 more points on Andrescu's serve. She goes 3 of 13 versus Andrescu's 3 of 6 on break points. Uh, she was right there in this match, and it's just, uh, it, it's crazy. I mean, the the level of tennis is crazy, but still just, you know, you, you cap it off for Belinda Benchich, an incredible run for her. She certainly now has gotten her taste of a, fi- of a semifinal, what it's like to make a deep run at a slam. And, you know, the 22-year-old who's been injured a lot early in her career, but the former world junior number one, we expect to see a lot more from her. 
But as a tennis fan now, in this final that we get Bianca Andreescu, who is objectively, you know, been maybe now at this point win or lose the best player on a hard court on the WTA, and that she's going to face Serena Williams, who looks incredible in her 6-3-6-1 demolition. And I say that despite, you know, 6-3 sounds close, but it was really close for like the first 20 minutes, and then Serena took off uh, her win over Alina Svitolina. This is exactly what tennis fans want. It is, and it's the Toronto final, which you know we was never allowed to blossom into a into a full stage, you know, three set match or two long sets. You know, it was it was it was stopped after four games because Serena had back spasms, and and it was those back spasms which caused Serena to not play Cincinnati. You know, she went there, she thought about playing her first round match, but she ultimately decided not to, and so that's why Serena's U.S. Open campaign was such a point of uncertainty and uh, Naomi Osaka got injured in Cincinnati and that's why her U.S. Open campaign was was hard to to really trust and and Belinda Vancic obviously she had already had success against Osaka earlier in 2019 but nevertheless I think Osaka's lack of mobility was certainly a, a factor in that fourth round match so but you know Serena she she's had this amazing uh run of bad luck in in 2019 with some some kind of health issue cropping up at various moments you know sure she uh beat victoria azarenka at indian wells in one of the matches of the year and it's very interesting that if, that if serena had not had to retire against garbina muguruza in the third round of indian wells and she had let's say she had won that match just exactly who would serena williams have played in the fourth round of Indian Wells, Bianca Andreescu. Yeah, exactly. Uh huh. And and so if so if Serena had not had that particular health problem, Andreescu might never have won Indian Wells. Her career ne- might never have taken off to the extent that it has. And then when their paths did intersect in Toronto, Serena had a health problem. So here we go again. Another another meeting of Serena and Andrescu. You know, the main thing is hopefully that Serena will not have another crazy piano fall on her from from nowhere moment, and we can get that full length final uh, that we didn't get in Toronto. So that 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 you know, so many other storylines, so many other plot points. I know num- number twenty four, a teenager winning the U.S. Open in her first main draw appearance. Uh, a teenager winning Indian Wells, Toronto, and the U.S. Open in the same year in her first appear- main draw appearance in all three events. Um, you know, Andrescu legitimately bidding to be the best hardcore player in the world at age 19. Uh, so many different plot points, but at the heart of it, let's just have a really good tennis match between these two amazing players getting the match that we didn't get in Toronto. We marveled at Andrescu's level in that Benchich uh, semifinal, but for Serena Williams over these past two matches, she's dropped, what, five, six games? And I mean, you know, her success on her first serve over her career, it's why she's arguably the greatest uh, tennis player of all time because she, you know, in this match, she only makes 58% of her first serves. Well, she wins 86% of the points. She wins 60% of the second serve points, four of eight on break points and saves all uh, for her in terms of converting and saves all six break points she faced. I mean, the serve plus one, it's the same thing as Andrescu. She's playing such aggressive, such smart, such 
confident tennis. And yeah, she she looks healthy. I mean, she had the little ankle scare earlier uh, in the week, but you know, given her level of play, I mean, these are two players who, I mean, they're going to knock the crap out of the ball it's going to be in impressive tennis and so just to wrap on this because again Serena's performance I, I I don't mean to you know disparage from Svitolina but today Serena just all over her but in terms of the final just tennis wise you know what are the things you're looking for what does an Andrescu win look like tennis wise what does a Serena win look like tennis wise well to me after what watching these two semifinals if you noticed, I, I mean, first of all, let's look at the Serena Svitolina semifinal. One thing that has to be said is that Svitolina did not answer the bell. And I mean, that takes absolutely zero away from Serena, who is absolutely majestic after the first two games of the match. Phenomenal performance. But nevertheless, in those first two games, Svitolina had nine game points. She had three break points in the first game on Serena's serve. She had six game points in the second game of that match lost all six of those and then and that you know so as soon as that happened and Serena got the two love lead despite a couple of very scratchy games that seemed to give Serena all the belief she needed and it certainly uh, eroded Spitalina's mentality and it, and it put her in a very negative place so I don't mean I I don't mean to interrupt you. I could not agree more. I think that little moment because you talk about Svitolina not failing to rise to the occasion. I don't know if that's exactly how I would put it. I mean, it's fair, you know, three and one. The scoreline speaks for itself. But that second game, given that Serena held for one zero after Svitolina had chances, it felt so crucial. And it, it you never want to say Svitolina crumbled because look, she's down two zero. It ends up being a six three set. But you could just tell from that moment on she was shaken. Yeah, I mean, what what do we know about Svitolina when she's at her best? She has great consistency. You know, she will keep the ball in the court, kind of absorbs like a, power so well. Kind of like a female Medvedev. She will just sure. keep spitting back the ball, daring you, insisting that you keep uh, hitting, hitting the, keeping, the, getting the ball back in the court. So she's very, very consistent and great shot tolerance. I mean, she makes great defensive gets when she's at her best. I mean, she will. You can stretch the court on her, and she will find ways to reset points bring rallies back to a neutral position and outlast you. Now, you know, one of the things that Svitolina had going for it this U.S. Open, it's why she made the semis, was a beefed-up serve. I mean, her serve is noticeably better better than it's been in quite some time. But, we, but you know, so that, that certainly was the extra ingredient that helped her get this far. But there's still the block components of an Alina Svitolina uh, portfolio and they they both go into consistency and shot tolerance rally tolerance and she didn't have any of that so um so getting back to the serena andrescu and what i'm what i'm looking for serena you know after those first two shaky games when she when she loosened up and and got locked in serena was blistering the cross court shot uh, especially from the forehand side also from the backhand side, but she she especially went after Svitolina's forehand. She went after the deuce corner, so she was she was intent on hitting a lot of cross court forehands. Uh, that the, the sharp cross angled shot was working really well for her. Now with Andrescu, and this this you know this obviously came through against Benchich, came through against Mertens. It's really how she plays. Andrescu really is the the power merchant for the down the line shot from both wings. 
she she catches players off guard going down the line a lot more. And that kind of gets back to, you know, settling into the passive, comfortable three-quarter pace, uh, cross-court backhand exchanges, hitting a lot of rally balls. Part of what makes Andrescu so effective as an attacking player is that she will immediately hit the ball down the line. She, she will not settle into a, a normal rally ball pattern. She will go down the line if she sees it. She, she catches all these uh, top pros, you know, Mertens and Benchich. I mean, those are not easy matchups. Those are tested veteran players. She, she caught them down the line many, many times. And so uh, Serena going cross court versus, versus Andrescu going down the line, that's going to be very interesting. And, and I think that Serena in particular within this, that chess match, Serena covering her ad side, her backhand side against an Andrescu down the line forehand. Uh, I think there's no bigger um, chess match in, in this final than that one. I I agree with you. At a more superficial level, I would say the thing Andrescu does better than a Svitolina or a Wang is she's going to hurt you, right? She's coming after you, and we haven't seen Serena tested it in that sort of way. Now, for Andrescu, the thing you worry about in this match with Benchich, she's 18 of 44 on the second serve. It's very attackable, and no one's going to attack a second serve better than Serena Williams, and so that's, you know, she's going to have to do better than the 59% of first serves in she did today against Benchich. You have to imagine Serena Williams, if she goes up 5-2, has a couple of chances, you know, to serve for the match. She's going to do it. Uh, so there there are certainly, you know, both of these players, obviously, you know, I, I don't need to say the way Serena Williams hurts you. Plus for Bianca Andreescu, you know, superficially, first Grand Slam final against Serena Williams in New York. She's risen to every occasion thus far. But it is an incredible stage, her first shot to win a Grand Slam title. So, you know, it, where I know I'm speaking for all tennis fans when we say we are very much looking forward to that match. Before we get to the women's final, though, we've got some men's semifinals to take care of tomorrow. Uh, the the match I want to start with, and I'm going to keep the same format for the previews, Dimitrov Medvedev, we talked a lot about Grigor and what it means for him to make this stage given the season he's had. But again, same format to you, tennis-wise specifically. Grigor Dimitrov, Daniil Medvedev, 1-1 one one all-time, both matchups coming back in 2017. So Daniil at that point, 21 years old. That was the season he had his really breakout performance when he beat Wawrinka in Wimbledon. Uh, they played at London uh, on the grass outdoors. Dimitrov won that match 6-3, 3-6, Then they played the round of 16 at the City Open on the outdoor hard court. Medvedev, a 6-4, 6-2 winner. Medvedev obviously nursing, uh, what is it, a Tuchis injury. He's got shoulder problems. He's got kinesio tape everywhere. Uh, but he has had two days to rest. Same for Grigor Dimitrov, although again, physically for him, he's played 27 matches uh, coming into this tournament. He looks fit as a fiddle. Uh, tennis-wise, what's it going to look like if each guy's having success? Well, I, I think that the, the, the template for Medvedev, I think just you know, dividing between the two, Medvedev's going to win if, it's a, if, it, if he is you know, in form and, and hitting the ball cleanly and the match goes straight, straightforwardly. I think Dimitrov is actually the guy who's in position to win the match if this is an ugly and prolonged Really? Well, I think the longer this match goes, the you know the that's that's Grigor's chance. I, you know, I highly doubt that Grigor is going to get on top of this match quickly and decisively and win in three. I think that Medvedev's the player who 
you know, if, you, if this is going to be in straight, it's going to be Medvedev. But Grigor would love to get into a fifth set uh, with, with Medvedev's accumulation of tennis. Full week in Washington, full week in Canada, full week in Cincinnati, you know, and now this long run at the U.S. Open. Um, Grigor, with, with his defense, his court coverage, uh, his ability to hit the slice to reset the point to a neutral position, you know, we, we, we are accustomed to thinking of Medvedev as the guy who's going to run down everything, get every ball back. But we've, we've seen late in Cincinnati, and we saw this also very uh, particularly in the Vafrinka quarterfinal, that Medvedev, when his body is breaking down, when he's feeling the, strain, the physical strain of prolonged combat, you know, you know the Djokovic semifinal in Cincinnati, the Wawrinka quarterfinal in New York, when he's feeling the physical strain of, of, of a match or of a full tournament, he can switch. He can switch not just to using a different shot here or a different shot there. He will adjust his whole playing style. He will he will take a whole his whole Gilles Simon 2.0 template and he will junk it, throw it in the trash bin for the day or at least for the next hour, and he will take on a totally different persona. That's why I, you know. So I got into this little argument or maybe not argument but debate on Twitter during the Favrinka quarterfinal. I said, you know what? Sorry, Fabrice Santoro. Danil Medvedev really is the magician uh, <laughs> because he makes things appear out of nowhere. But people said, no, 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 no. It is Fabrizio is the magician. Blasphemy. <laughs> so, okay, I relented. So, Fabrice, if you're listening to the Mini Break podcast, you're the magician. I- I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but, so here's, here's my nickname for Medvedev, or Club Med, as I sometimes refer to him. He is the magical mystery tour. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he goes through tournaments, and he can completely reinvent himself over the course of a tournament so it's a it's a it's a tour it's a journey but it's magic and it's definitely mysterious so um to get to get back to the dimitrov semifinal, you know if uh if, if medvedev is having to reinvent himself if he's having to ch- go through these kinds of changes that's going to tell me that dimitrov's his steadiness his variety is having an effect i think that medvedev would prefer to come out blazing with his serve and with his consistency from the back of the court, having had these two days off. But let's consider this, that, that while Medvedev has had a little bit more time to rest after going through that gauntlet in the first five matches, it could be that having two days off is going to um, corrode his machinery and, and he's not going to be firing efficiently. So that would open the door for this match to be ugly. And I think Grigor is in position to win an ugly match. Obviously, Grigor can't provide too much of the ugliness himself. Even though he p- played so well against Federer, we still saw him double fault in key scoreboard moments. Um, if he can wipe away the double fault yips uh, in big scoreboard situations, uh, his fitness could take over late in the fourth set and then in a possible fifth set, but can he get there? So I think Medvedev wants to just overpower Dimitrov early and make this a short, clean, efficient match. Dimitrov, I think, you know, has a, a better chance if it's ugly and if those two days off really um, serve as a detriment to Medvedev rather than a help. A good historical recollection along these lines, Alex. Novak Djokovic getting the walkover courtesy of Fabio Fanini 
at 2011 Roland Garros when he had won over 40 straight matches. That did hurt him. It did not help him going into that semifinal against not baby fed, but senior fed, the original fed, the only fed, Roger Federer, whose defense and his ability to slice, ability to uh, prolong rallies by resetting points. That's my historical parallel for Dimitrov here. The chess mass match to me, we're going to be monitoring the whole time. Grigor Dimitrov balancing, making it as physical, as prolonged, as you mentioned, as possible, versus him not taking the bait that Daniil Medvedev, how uncomfortable he can make opponents, you know. He'll throw in slice. He'll throw in loopy short angle cross court balls. Want to play that game with you? You think you can open up an angle on him? Then it turns out he's six six, beats you to the spot, and goes flat down the line in this incredible fashion. You know he likes to throw in drop shot overhead. So for Dimitrov, he'll have to balance playing the sort of attacking tennis he wants to play. Run around that uh, backhand, hit the inside in forehand, follow it in. You know if you hit poor draw, uh, poor approach shots against Daniil Medvedev, he'll make you pay with the pass. That's something he's done so well throughout his hard court summer just his ability to you know even be six five feet behind the baseline but track down that extra ball make you play an extra ball you know I, it's going to be really interesting to see how Dimitrov balances that you'd think given their levels coming into this Medvedev would be the one who wants to make this physical just outlast Grigor the waves the balance keep attacking that ad backhand side make Grigor play more slices and then put Grigor on the defensive you know Daniil Medvedev six foot six he can cover the entire net when he gets up there. So it's going to be really interesting. Daniil Medvedev's serve, given that he's hurting, is going to be so important, as you mentioned. If he can get free points on even the second serve, which sometimes he likes to slap, it led to, what, nine double faults in the quarterfinals, but whatever, he got through it. Uh, that's something to monitor if he starts slapping again. Maybe that's a tell that he is physically wearing down. Maybe Dimitrov will be aware of that. Uh, but for both of these guys, I don't know. I'm going to get you into a prediction, Matt. Who you got? Uh, I like Club Med in three. Club Med in three? You think it's going to be the serving, the volleying he comes to the net? Uh, yeah. Well, I think— Not serving and volleying, but serving and then following it in. Sure, sure. I think I think he's going to get on top of this match. And, and you know, this is, this is not a negative commentary on Dimitrov. It's just that Medvedev really has earned a lot more trust at this point. And— as as much as as I've talked at the beginning of the show about Dimitrov deserving all the credit in the world, it still does remain that he has not beaten an elite an elite player who was also fully physically fit. Um, so I mean, you know, the burden of proof, you know, the show me you can do this. I'm skeptical. That certainly sides with with Dimitrov. I mean, he he is the person I have to doubt more. Medvedev's the person. I have to trust more based on the phenomenal run that he's had. Yeah, that's fair. I'm going to go... I'll take Medvedev in four. I think for Grigor, the first set is so important. If you can get Medvedev not only hurting and complaining, but down... I mean, I don't know if we've seen... He's had his fair share of trouble, but I don't know if we've seen him down in any of his matches being, you know, more than a set. That would be... Or more than a couple of breaks. Uh, that would, That's going to be so crucial for Dimitrov. I agree with you, though. I'm probably leaning. Uh, I'm probably leaning. I'll take Medvedev in four. I think Grigor takes the second, but then Medvedev amps up the serving. Uh, you know, wakes up and just, just too many ways he can hurt Grigor. Too many ways he can outlast Grigor. His level this summer speaks for itself. So I agree with you. I'm going to take Medi. Our last match I want to talk about. 
I, you know, Daniil Medvedev gets all of the credit as the next gen guy. But Matteo Berrettini, 23 years old, my definition of next gen, uh, two ti- two titles this season. He's 29 and 15 coming into this event. The power serve forehand display he showed this entire serve or this entire tournament has been so impressive. He matches up with number two seed Rafael Nadal, the guy they've never played before professionally. You know, it, it's very interesting. I guess here's what I want to take this is that I feel like for Rafa Nadal, the way to beat him on a hard court, and I know Kachanov didn't do it last year. I know Team didn't do it last year, but the way Djokovic does it, you you want to outlast him, right? You can wear him down because physically he's, what, 33 years old. His knees do, you know, it's the second week of a slam. That's how you beat Rafa Nadal. You can break him down. You saw Schwartzman the way he started spraying at points of the match, but that's not Matteo Berrettini's style. He's big serve, big forehand. He imposes his will. And that's why I, I'm really curious, you know, what to you does a Berrettini win look like? Because with all due respect, the Berrettini slice backhand the way he doesn't want to hit that side. I think we all know what a Rafa win looks like at this point. So if Berrettini is to pull it off, Matt, what does he have to do? He has to uh, clutch his rosary beads. <laughs> um, and he needs, he needs to pray to to his Lord and Savior and to the Virgin Mary that Rafael Nadal is going to get injured. Probably has to do Fabio Fognini's you know, pre-match ritual as well, you know, a little... Whatever it takes to get Rafael Nadal injured. I mean, because unless, you know, unless Nadal gets injured or he has match-long cramps, um, this is ending only one way, and that's ending with Rafa Nadal in three sets. You think so? You think Rafa just, even though the way Schwartzman was able, you know, Schwartzman did some things in that match, and so the way he attacked Rafa on the second serve, the way Rafa really was spraying the forehand was the most shocking part, but you don't think there's a world where Matteo Berrettini goes 65% of his first serves on the day, he's finding the forehand because Rafa, you know, playing so far behind the baseline on the return gives him time to run around. Isn't that what it would take? I think that Berrettini, you know, would not only have to get 65% of first serves in, but he would need to win like 80% of those first serve points. Sure. And and when we realize that Berrettini just played a four-hour match against Monfils, which is extremely emotionally draining. Oh, and now you have to play Nadal in a <laughs> semifinal after you've played two full weeks of tennis? Uh, you know, so if you think that Berrettini's going to, you know, come particularly close in this match, I have some swampland in New Mexico I'd like to suffer. <laughs> yeah, here's the Brooklyn let's be, Bridge. Let's be real. Let's be yeah, real yeah. about this. I mean, it really is a matter of Nadal being reasonably healthy and not succumbing to something. So that's fair. With with Craig O'Shaughnessy in Berrettini's box, though, you know he'll have the percentages on his side. But but if he's mentally and physically exhausted, the, the number the numbers really aren't aren't going to matter. You know, let's say that you know, let's say that Berrettini had straight setted Monfils. Okay, you know, so that would be an interesting subtext to this match with Bettini, Berrettini roaring in, having you know demolished Rublev, demolished Monfils. But no, after a after that marathon in which we saw plenty of nerves from Berrettini in big moments. Um, this this all just comes down to simply if Rafa's relatively healthy, it's going to be one way. You know, the thing the thing to remember about Schwartzman is that you know he does battle Nadal really well from the backcourt. You know, he can whip that backhand uh, flat and hard and catch. Feeds the- off of Nadal's spin. Yes, he yes he does. He knows how to handle it. I mean, we saw the 
remember that quarterfinal at Roland Garros. I mean, that was the dog's toughest match. The rain saved him against Diego, you know, and he he was able to play well, you know, upon the resumption the next day under very different conditions. I mean, Schwartzman did have him a little bit on the ropes um, late in that that night when it was uh, when the conditions were cool and damp. Um, so, you know, Schwartzman regularly does battle Nadal at the majors. You saw it at the Australian Open uh, a year ago. But the thing that, that Schwartzman simply cannot do against Nadal or really any m- member of the big three is win cheap points on serve, especially when it matters. You know, it's a lot like Kay Nishikori against the big three. Just that serve becomes such a huge and conspicuous limitation. So, um, you know, Berrettini obviously has much more of a serve than Schwartzman does, but, you know, but, but Berrettini is not as consistent from the back as Schwartzman. So, you know, Berrettini just has to lean on that serve to an inordinate degree. And he's not a server you would put in the same category as John Isner or Daniil Medvedev or, or the placement oriented server such as Federer. So really, it's just really, really, really hard to see how Berrettini has a path. Let's remember that Federer just absolutely crushed him at Wimbledon. And some people, including this guy, this, this idiot, thought he had a real chance to make that, that a competition. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just a ocean width of difference between beating Gael Monfils, uh, all due respect to Monfils, and beating a, a member of the big three. Nadal's just going to have to be physically depleted on a significant scale for this match to be reasonably competitive. Yeah, look, uh, Benteo Berrettini, 12-15, uh, 20 sets through five matches, so he's averaging four sets a match. This is, again, his first Grand Slam semifinal. You imagine for Rafa Nadal what he's going to do. Lefty slice serve down the tee on the ad, lefty slice serve out wide on the, or on the, sorry, on the deuce, lefty slice serve out wide on the ad. It, it, the recipe for him looks very, very clear. So with that, you're sticking Rafa three sets. Yeah, Rafa in, in three sets, if not two. It's kind of like when you get a a, a mismatch uh, first round NBA playoff series. You know, the playoff series is best of seven. So technically, right. you mean like the Pistons this year versus the Bucks? Exactly. Technically, you have to win four games, but you know, I might say of a mismatch, um, you know, the favored team is going to win in three. So I could say like Rafa's going to win in two. Look, I think Matteo Berrettini with that semifinal check can afford to go 3-2-1 Cancun because he has earned himself a break. And, you know, I don't want to count him out. I'm going to take – I mean, I'm taking Rafa, but I'll, I'll go four sets as well. I just think Berrettini, you go down two sets to love in a Grand Slam semifinal. Some, you summon some sort of courage, and that serve. He's going to put together one set of just bomb serving. And, yeah, I'm going to stick with it. Rafa and four, Berrettini takes – I don't think he can take the third. Uh, Veratini takes the second. I'm sticking with it. But with that said, Matt, uh, again, I've kept you way too late. So any final thoughts? Any uh, thing? Again, let our listeners know what they can expect from TennisAccent.com over the weekend, where they can find your stuff. Yeah, so we're at TennisAccent.com. We'll have more Tennis Accent premium long reads, those deep dives uh, from some of our in-house writers and our freelancers. So watch for that. I'm going to write about the 20th anniversary of Serena Williams' first U.S. Open title and first major title, that match against Martina Hingis. Um, the other thing that I, that I wanted to mention um, is that Matteo Berrettini, 
he played in the Phoenix Challenger in March. And so five and a half months later, he's a U.S. Open semifinalist. I have to express just how much of a success that Phoenix Challenger is. And so, you know, a lot of people listening to the Mini Break podcast, uh, you know, might wonder about, you know, tennis vacations, tennis trips to take. Um, so, you know, I live in Phoenix, and so I, I would be a bad Phoenician if I did not mention that the Arizona Tennis Classic, this 125K Challenger, debuted this year. David Goffin was the number one seed. Jeremy Chardy was there, and you had Berrettini, who's gone on to make the U.S. Open semifinals. You had Mikhail Kukushkin, who made the Wimbledon fourth round. Lorenzo Sinego was at this tournament. You know, he, he's had a really solid year relative to his position so this first year arizona tennis classic which is held during the second week of indian wells it's basically meant to be a a directional uh, location for players who lose early in indian wells as they go toward miami they can play in arizona on their way to miami get some extra tennis in and it did so much good for so many players so that's going to be a really popular stop on the challenger tour i mean some of the pros who lose in indian wells are going to be happy to play at the phoenix country club so that could be a tennis destination for you next year not, not, i'm not talking about you alex i'm talking about the listeners to the uh, not mini break podcast so i'm not invited well you are but just i wasn't trying to be exclusive just to you <laughs> That would that would offend the mini break audience. Yeah, that's fair. Look, I hope they do. You mentioned being a bad Phoenician. I would be a bad podcast host if I did not give a shout out to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who, as always, have a an editing job to do. Uh, again, tenniswithanaccent.com for Matt. If you've missed anything else, be sure to check out our previous mini breaks throughout the week. We've gone, you know, I think we missed only Labor Day throughout the U.S. Open, so you need to catch on and up on anything to get ready for the semifinals. This is the podcast for you. I will ask, as always, please like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast. For the more immediate updates, Tennis Twitter is always a place to find us at Cracked Rackets, at Great Shot Podcast, at Mini Break Pod. But with that being said, for my lovely co-host, who again, co-manager of the incredible tennis uh, media website, TennisAccent.com, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from our entire team at the Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Maddie, what do we tell our listeners? That's the mini break. And we hope you enjoy uh, today's semifinals. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>